Ryan, are you there? Hello, Michael. Hello, Internet. Hello, world. Hello, worldwide Internet. Welcome to a new edition and a new year of the Buck and Sack Show. It yeah. is, what is it, Ryan? It's Wednesday, January the, the 8th, 8th, 2020. Our first show of the new year. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to everybody out there. Uh, it's 8.30 here on the West Coast. I'm Michael in San Francisco. Ryan, you're in Portland, Oregon, where you have returned from a overseas, what is it, Southeast Asia adventure? How are you? Yeah, I'm excellent. It was uh, it was a busy and crazy couple of weeks, but a yeah. really fun couple of weeks. Good. Um, I think I may have even previously chronicled some of the the issues getting yeah, uh, visas and visa passports issues. and those things. So uh, finally, did we got our we got our visas and passports both about four and a half hours before we had to take our flight out of the country. Um, so it was uh, it was touch and go. Came down to the wire, but uh, once those wheels went up, it was it was really awesome the rest of the time. And uh, I'll get into it plenty, but uh, yeah, happy New Year to you and to to all of our listeners. Yeah, good good stuff. Well, why don't you just keep going here? Uh, your vacation is going to be your good of the week. Break it down for us. Yeah, so it was uh, it was split up in kind of t- parts. The first is that we were going to a very close friend's wedding, one of the um, bridesmaids from uh, on uh, in Kim's bridal party for our wedding was getting married. Uh, her husband uh, a, from India originally, um, he's been here in the U.S. for um, a while, and they, and they actually had a civil ceremony uh, in, with the courthouse, and they've been officially married in the U.S. Uh, for about six months, but went back to uh, essentially his hometown to do the traditional uh, Indian wedding celebration, which is a big three-day event, and uh, and we were, got to be a part of all of it. And so it was, like I said, three days. It involved uh, the first day kind of having a, a welcome party for the groom who was – uh, the bridal party essentially welcomes him into the the town or the place where the wedding is going to be. There are drummers, there's dancing, everyone wearing bright colors, throwing flower petals. Um, there's a whole bunch of that going on. Then the following day, they have something that's called the Sangeet, which is like um, it's it's almost like I would liken it to the American rehearsal dinner, but like ten or fifteen times that in that. It's a huge dance party. It's not just dinner. It's really everybody who's going to be invited to the wedding the next day shows up for that. And it's kind of the the family and friends opportunity to like pay tribute to the couple. So mm-hmm. there was like we were in like a ballroom with a stage and like laser lights and smoke machines. And Damn. There, there were 20 to 25 different choreographed dances that people performed for the couple. Uh, I, was in, I was involved in one of these dances. My wife was involved in two of them. And it was just this uh, it totally kind of – it was like, a, like an awesome rehearsal dinner on stage. Uh, was alcohol was just, being served? It was not being – no, it wasn't. So, okay. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, but – what is, I guess, also tradition is if the family isn't necessarily all about that, which is often the case, um, the the groom's side will set up either what they call a barhar or a booze room, and they'll have a, a room off to the side where people who do want to partake can partake, and it's such a long – uh, kind of drawn out event. It's almost like the wedding reception itself mm-hmm. um, that we were we were sneaking away um, for 
uh, liquor, beer, wine, whatever. So people were enjoying that, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really out in the open and in the it public. wasn't a featured attraction. No, no, it wasn't. Right. Um, and then, and then on the actual wedding day itself, it was, it's a very different sort of ceremony. It lasted about two and a half hours. The ceremony does. And it was, and the, the couple are seated. They have someone that is akin to a priest or a pastor who's performing their ceremony. And uh, their parents are up there with them. And they're, there's so much going on, and it's happening for so long that they're sitting down the entire time. Yeah. And they also know that, like, the audience or the, the people in attendance are not going to um, – they're basically not going to – continue to just sit there and, and watch the whole thing. And it's not really even meant for you to be able to hear or listen to the whole thing. So there are waiters going around with appetizers and drinks and people are just getting up and mingling and taking photos with each other. And it's like, it's very odd that the ceremony isn't really the focal point. I mean, it's, it is the visual focal point and everything's happening up there. But only about 15% of the people really seem checked into that. So um, that was different. Additionally, there's a tradition in which before the end of the ceremony, the bride side is supposed to steal the groom's shoes. Uh, the reason for this is that they can then hold the shoes for ransom and the groom will have to pay money to get them back before he can kind of take his official post-wedding photos. So um, those were stolen and then there's this huge negotiation that goes on that he has to do to get him back and we got like 180 bucks out of the groom to give his uh to give him his shoes back so uh that was later uh used to fund an after party but there was just there were just so many different little traditions and rituals um that were really fun to be a part of mm -hmm. and then on top of it we were we were dressed up in the uh, the traditional garb when when my wife and i were in delhi we went and we got um kind of Indian formal wear, if you will. I, I wore what's called a kurta. Um, it, it's kind of like a, a long one-piece, almost robe, but with a pattern, and uh, kind of has a uh, like a little call, a button-up collar to it. And, uh, yeah, and then you I mean, wear it, it like looks pajama like, pants. It looks like that outfit that Keanu Reeves wore in The Matrix a little bit. Uh, a little bit, yeah. It's, it's kind of like that style. Yeah. But more I colorful. went to an yeah, Indian yeah. wedding once, and I wore something... That I kept talking about that I was... What was the name of Keanu's character? Uh, Neo. Neo, right. Yeah. <laughs> I kept telling everybody that I was, that I was Neo. Um, but India was really cool. India was also chaos. Delhi was where we started and is the most populated city in the world at 30 million. Uh, the pollution there is a little bit insane. The traffic there is very insane. Uh -huh. um, as, and as I say insane, my dog is trying to eat me right now. I, I hear um, that. <laughs> um, but basically, the that was the first kind of major part of the trip, which was – um, the principal reason we went, but then we were able to use the next seven or eight days as kind of a second honeymoon for Kim and I, where we went to Bangkok uh, first and then down to down south to Krabi. And uh, and being in Thailand was absolutely incredible. I couldn't recommend it enough uh -huh. um, for anybody who enjoys international travel. It felt, uh, at least being in Krabi, which is where we were for the most time, a little bit like being um, in like a kind of beach resort type town like a somewhere somewhere like you might be in hawaii or like maybe like waikiki maui something like that or like a cabo san lucas but it, it had a little bit of that vibe but um not nearly as busy as those places the landscape was absolutely staggering they're just these tall um kind of r sheer rock cliff faces 
um, everywhere. The water was as warm a water as I've ever been around and it or ever been in, I should say. And basically it was, it was just the perfect beach vacation. We had a, we had a spot that was right on, uh, right, right on the water. So we were sitting or swimming in our pool about 10 yards away from the beach, which was awesome. And, uh, on top of it, we, we did a really cool hike. Um, we went to this kind of, uh, this, this Island or this beach that is only available or only reachable by boat. You can't get there by car. There are no cars on this part of the Island. Um, it was inhabited heavily by wild monkeys, which was really wow. cool. Um, and then we also did, uh, we did a Thai cooking class. My wife and I are both really into food. Yeah. There are um, monkeys everywhere. Um, my wife and I really enjoy just the act of cooking, learning new cuisines. We, we did a lot of Japanese cooking before we took our, our first and only trip to Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, we hadn't done as much Thai cooking previously, but we signed up for class in which we went away from the beach town and, um, into kind of a little more jungly area and, and went to this open air outdoor cooking school. And, uh, we each got to, we, we did it with, uh, six or seven other people, but we each got to pick four different dishes to make. So I made four dishes. My wife, my wife made four different dishes than the ones I made. Um, which was, which was really cool, learn how to use all their spices, all their flavors, and, and kind of how they cook a lot of the stuff that you and I enjoy regularly at Thai restaurants. And, and then we also did one of those um, elephant sanctuary experiences, which is you know, non-harmful. And, and one of the deals, there's a lot of elephants have been overworked, um, kind of dragging lumber through the jungle over the years, and also um, just being used to be ridden upon by, by tourists or made to do tricks. And this was a place that um, fosters retired elephants who've been mistreated. And, uh, there were four of them at this sanctuary sanctuary. And, uh, we got to go and spend half a day around, them, uh, feeding them, um, bathing them, uh, playing with them. And there, there was, as someone who's just a big animal lover, it was a really, really memorable experience as well. Um, and it was just the whole trip. Uh, I mean, I, I could go, on forever about it, but uh, they were India and Thailand parts were very different from each other. But uh, we enjoyed all of it all the way through. So lots of memories uh, to last through the years. That's awesome, man. I'm glad it all worked out, and it sounds like you had just once in a lifetime. Well, maybe not once in a lifetime, but once in a lifetime I for most probably. people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, once in a lifetime for most Americans for sure. Um, and you know. I did get to see some of the street food scenes that you posted on your Instagram stories, and I, I honestly fantasize about doing something like that, whether it's either in a place like Thailand or Japan or wherever it is and in some Asian uh, country, just walking. It just seems like you know a, a street food market almost, where just everything mm-hmm. is on the table, uh, pretty cheap, I'm sure, uh, and it just it just looks incredible. And I hope that one day I get to experience it myself. Yeah, definitely. The, the street food, especially in Thailand, uh, was was really delicious. We had the good fortune of being two places that were really well known for it uh, in Bangkok and also in Phuket, which we were only there for a night. But it happened to coincide with their weekly Sunday night, um, essentially street food market, which had all these stalls and uh, just incredible offerings, really creative and unique things, all really cheap things, too. I mean, the amount of food you can put like if you brought the equivalent of 20 American dollars uh, with you, you would not be able to go through it and finish everything you ate. It was, it, wow. it was just real, really cheap and, and really, really delicious. 
Well, sounds amazing, and and I appreciate the recap, and I'm glad you're back. And I guess you missed um, what was really a fantastic NFL wildcard weekend, Ryan. I mean, also th- not entirely. I did I okay. did catch uh, quite a bit of the Seahawks Eagles game, which was the worst. I caught a lot of highlights. It it was it was the worst of the bunch. Uh, yeah. I saw a lot of clips of the Titans uh, Bills game, or excuse me, the, the Texans. Um, the the Texans Bills game, yeah. which was weird and wild in that was a the lot best of ways. Of the and then I I didn't see the one I didn't see any of was Saints Vikings, but I, I saw a little bit of the others uh, and kind of a lot of the one that wasn't that great. But continue. Yeah, well, they were all four pretty good. I mean, I watched almost all of the four. I didn't see the first half really of the Saints Vikings game. I watched pretty much every play of the other three. I thought the Bills-Texans games was just wild, as you said, and crazy. Uh, the t- it was really the Titans-Patriots game was, was really fun. Um, and, and, you know, the, the Eagles game was basically over once Carson Wentz was concussed uh, mm-hmm. by Davion Clowney. Um, but, yeah, I just thought it was an awesome first, first weekend of the NFL playoffs. And I'm really excited for this coming weekend. Uh, the NFL, the, the the divisional round, which I think, Ryan, when you pair these two days we have coming up on Saturday and Sunday with two games each with the national championship game between Clemson and LSU on Monday, I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that we are about to embark on the best football weekend of the year, the best three-day stretch think, of football of Yeah, the I year. think that's entirely possible. And I, I hadn't really thought of it in that framing with also – Kind of including the national championship as the as the third day following yeah. previous days of, of really good matchups, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this is what most football fans are are waiting for and leading up to, and uh, it sh- it should be. Yeah. So uh, that's my good of the week. Is is this upcoming weekend? We'll talk about the Clemson LSU game in a little bit in my interesting of the week, but. Uh, you know, I, I just want to go through each game a little bit. The first game on Saturday is Minnesota at San Francisco, uh, the 49ers lane seven. I'm really looking forward to this game. You know, Adam Thielen apparently hurt his ankle today in practice. I they, saw that. Yeah, they think he'll be good by Saturday, but he had been hurt a big chunk of the year anyway. He played a huge factor in the win, you know, the big upset win down at the Superdome in New Orleans on Sunday, so I think that's something to watch. Also, Stefan Diggs hasn't practiced; he's sick. So you know, I just think that it, there's a lot of interesting storylines. I think if the Vikings are healthy, they can give the Niners a hell of a game. But if those wide receivers aren't at full strength or can't play at all, I I, I like the Niners in this game. Uh, the Niners, as I said, are a seven-point favorite. Uh, then on Saturday night, you've got Derrick Henry, King Henry the NFL's rushing leader this season. He put on an absolute show at Foxborough on Saturday night in dethroning the defending six-time champion New England Patriots. Now he's going to take his show on the road to Baltimore uh, to face this year's presumptive MVP in Lamar Jackson. Uh, Baltimore's lane, nine and a half at home. I'm just excited to see if Lamar can you know, kind of play in the playoffs the way he's played all year. The last time we saw him in the playoff, he was horrible. I think he threw four interceptions and also fumbled it twice. I may have that slightly wrong. He turned it over a ton last year in his playoff debut at home against the Chargers and took an ugly loss. So he's got a lot of pressure on him to perform this Saturday night. Then on Sunday, 
Uh, you've got Houston and Deshaun Watson coming off a tremendous performance. They were down 16-0 at home against the Bills. It looked like they were going to get shut out at home in the playoffs for the second year in a row. And then Deshaun and the Texans come storming back. Uh, the Bills quarterback, Josh Allen, looked terrific in the first half. He looked drunk in the second half. And then he kind of had a chance to redeem himself. He leads them to tie the tying field goal. They go to overtime. He couldn't get it done in overtime. But Deshaun Watson has, you know, this epic play where he avoids two would-be sackers and finds the open mm -hmm. receiver down the field for about a 40-yard gain. That was the highlight of that game. But he's just a terrific player. Uh, the Texans won yeah. that game against Buffalo without their speed burner on the outside at receiver Will Fuller. Uh, he's expected to be back in the lineup on Sunday in Arrowhead. Uh, of course, you've got Pat Mahomes is now, you know, he, he lost at home to the Patriots last year in the AFC Championship game in his first year as a starter. So he's he and Andy Reid and that whole team, uh, they're a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. They're expected to win a great home field advantage. But I think the Texans, if they're healthy, you know, now they have J.J. Watt back, of course, as well. I think they can give the Chiefs a game. That's probably the game I'm most looking forward to. That or the finale on Sunday, which has Russell Wilson and the Seahawks going into Green Bay to face a rested Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. That's the smallest line of the weekend. Uh, the Packers favored by four. Uh, First-year head coach, uh, Brian, is it Brian LaFleur? Do I have that right? Uh, Matt LaFleur. I always want to call him Brian, too. Why well, is I that? Think he, know so he has Brian a brother. LaFleur? He has a brother oh, who's okay. an NFL coach named Brian. Uh, you're right. It's Matt LaFleur. It's funny, though. I've made that mistake myself with that same yeah, kind of weird. pedestrian first name, so there must be a reason for it. Yeah, so anyway, Matt LaFleur, his first game as a mm -hmm. head coach in the playoffs at home at Lambeau. Uh, I think that's going to be an awesome game. I think all four of these games, like I said, a lot of storylines, a lot of intrigue. Uh, I, I think that... I don't know. I'm a little bit surprised that those that some of these spreads are as big as they are. Um, and we'll get to that when we go in the book. But I'm just expecting four really awesome games. I'm looking forward to sitting down and watching every minute of NFL Divisional Weekend. What's your take? Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat, and especially because I missed so much of uh, the last weekend. And uh, with good reason. I certainly don't regret any of it, but uh, I am already – starting to uh, ponder various uh, smoked meat recipes for Saturday's tilt between Good. the 49ers and the Vikings. I, I plan on watching throughout the weekend. And uh, as a, just as a fan, I'm, I'm clearly most excited about the 49ers because they are my team. I'm very nervous about that game though, because uh, the Vikings looked really buttoned up against the saints. They just played pretty efficient football, pretty tough football. Um, and, and, I, I think they're incredibly dangerous, but as you mentioned, with if they have one or possibly two of their top receivers as questionable, now it doesn't sound like Diggs is in jeopardy of not playing, but um, being under the weather this time of year ain't great, and uh, I don't know how bad this feeling ankle injury is, but if that takes a dimension away from them, then I, I don't worry quite as much about um, what the Vikings are going to be able to do on the offensive side of the ball, but I got to be honest that I'm nervous for the 49ers. And I, I think this feels like the kind of year, and maybe I've said this before, that 
They played so great in the regular season and at times even punched above their weight, I think. Uh, maybe even won a couple games that they probably shouldn't have. And they've been, you know, give Kyle Shanahan and both coordinators credit for pushing all the right buttons. And they've dealt with a slew of injuries. But I, I still wonder if they're a year away and that if – like some other teams we've seen in the past who get the first round by in the one seed, whether how much of the tank they emptied getting to this point and, uh, and whether they're a little bit vulnerable in this spot. So as a, and maybe that's just the, the fearful fan in me. Um, but I, I think that this could very well be a game, especially if those Vikings receivers are healthy. And then additionally, um, I think the game that from just an objective point of view, I'm most excited for is that late one, that Seahawks Packers one. Yeah. Uh, I think that I, I frankly expect the Seahawks to go win that football game. As I think that um, Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll is a combination in, in the postseason that I would want to face about as little as Brady and Belichick and probably not to that level. And obviously those guys haven't won nearly as many rings, uh, but that acumen and their, uh, history with each other and in this in the postseason has been so strong uh, that I, I think they have to have the advantage over Aaron Rodgers, who's had a little bit of a down year, and Matt Lafleur, who's a fir- doing this for the first time. So, um, yeah. as far as the other two games with the bigger spreads, um, I think that the all season I've thought the, the Titans can't possibly do this with Ryan Tannehill under center, and he only threw for seventy two yards against the Patriots, but it was good enough to win. And you mentioned Derrick Henry's performance uh, as being the bell cow for that team, or Tractor Cito, as he is uh, known by ESPN right. Deportes. Um, but that I, I think that they – I thought they are a paper tiger this whole time, and I, I think they're – I've been thinking they're waiting for somebody to just come up and smack them, but I don't know that, they, that that's their identity. I think that they're a tough, gritty football team. I think they resemble their head coach a little bit, and I think they may give the Ravens trouble. Now, I, I think Lamar may be too good and the Ravens may be too complete, uh, but I, I like you see that being a little bit closer game than the 9.5 or 10-point spread that it's at. And then additionally, I, I do think that the, the Chiefs may roll the Texans, and not because – I don't think the Texans are, are good, but um, they had to fight tooth and nail just to be in this spot. And I think that their their defense is a little bit vulnerable. Now, the Chiefs is too, but I, I think the Chiefs' you don't defense wanna... has been playing great the last seven or eight weeks of the season. They, I think they heard the noise of, I don't know if it was just hearing the noise, but as soon as people started talking about how that was going to be their Achilles heel, that's really turned around quite a bit for them. But I, I still worry what their what their defense really is and uh against a team with a player as uh as talented who who can stretch the field and do as many things as Deshaun Watson plus some of the offensive skill position players they have there it's a really tall order for that Chiefs defense but I think if it's a shootout you don't want to be in one with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes and uh as much as Andy Reid has kind of tripped on himself at times in the playoffs I I I think he has a decided advantage over Bill O'Brien so I I think the Chiefs may win that one big but like you know I'm excited for all these games and I wouldn't be surprised if any of the eight teams uh, or any four combination of these four teams emerged uh, into championship weekend. Yeah. You know, we, we talked about Le, it being LaFleur's playoff uh, coming out party, his first playoff game. It's Kyle Shanahan's first playoff game as a head coach. It's yep. now Mike yep. Vrabel's only second playoff game as a head coach. So uh, the, the storylines are all over the place. I mean, the only head coach that there's two head coaches left in the game right now, that have won a Super Bowl. It's Pete Carroll and John Harbaugh. 
Uh, and Andy Reid's the only other one that's ever even been to a Super Bowl mm-hmm. as a head coach. So there's a lot of unknowns there at the head coaching position. Again, to me, when I when we get in the NFL playoffs, I'm looking at the head coach, I'm looking at the quarterback, and I'm looking at, at the defense. Who, who, who can play the best defense? Who can make the other team one-dimensional? You know, who can take away the run or take away the pass and sort of force the hand of the other offense? And then I just want to say, in general, uh, I'm sitting there watching these wild card games on Sunday, and the level of physicality in the playoffs, Ryan. You know, the NFL, obviously, every Sunday, very, very physical, hard-hitting, injuries galore. Man's uh, league. But it, it went up several notches this past weekend on Wild Card Weekend. And, and to me, it just jumps off the TV what absolute badass motherfuckers these guys are that play in the NFL. <laughs> I mean, and I think that the, the general fan completely glosses over that. You know, they're looking at fantasy numbers or they're looking at their parlays or their teasers or they're just kind of tuning in because their buddy or their husband or whoever else is. And they and I just think that the appreciation level by the general fan is not where it should be for just how physical and how tough and athletic and just how great these players are. These guys go out there and they just put their bodies on the line. I mean, Zach Ertz is out there, uh, the tight end for the Eagles, playing in a playoff game with a lacerated uh, kidney and two broken ribs. You know, I mean, that's that's crazy. You know, I've never had broken ribs, but I'd imagine that if I had, there's not a chance in hell I'm getting off the couch for about a month. Much less going... Yeah, playing in an NFL playoff game. and laugh, let alone... It's it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And, you know, I know that there's modern medicine and they can do wondrous things, but it's still, I mean, they're, they're putting it on the line and just the, the level of play, uh, you know, how close these games are. I mean, all four of those games this past weekend, Ryan, came down to one score, all four of them. And to me, just the NFL, how close the competition is, particularly now when you get in the playoffs, these teams are all really, really good. They all want it really, really bad. And they are just going out there and, you know, they are practicing all week. They're game plan. They're watching film, you know, to their eyes bleed. And they're, they're just getting jacked up to the gills and going out there on either Saturday or Sunday and putting on an absolute show. And it's just the, the for me... It's the absolute pinnacle of sports. I think that the NFL playoffs are as good as it gets in in American sports, at least. I don't watch uh, other countries' sports, you know, no offense to them. But as far as American sports go, it's the best. And it's not even close. You know, these NFL playoffs are just amazing. And and I I love it. I I just absolutely love it. Football's the best. And now, you know, this is going to be the last multi-day weekend of football that we have until Labor Day, you know, until the end of August, beginning of September. Yeah. It's going to be a long, long wait. So you got to soak up every moment this weekend if you like football the way we do, because it, it's gone in, a, in, you know, in a couple weeks. Yeah, man, that uh, that's a that's a little bit of a that was an alarming take you gave me there with this being I mean I could have put two and two together but I wasn't really thinking about it in that yeah uh, in that headspace and Last I don't like multi-day it very much, but, weekend of football until Labor Day but uh yeah I'm, I'm excited for all of it just like you are 
All right, cool. Let's move on. What's your bad of the week? Uh, my bad of the week actually uh, comes to us from out of the wild card round, and really, it's a it's a broader thing. It's not just football, but the slow motion replays in sports have gotten completely out of hand. And I don't want to say that they're ruining the game because I'm still someone believe, that believes I would rather get the call right and have it take a little bit longer um, than than get it completely wrong. That being said, the process has got to change because in both the NFL and the NBA and in MLB, we are spending way too much time sitting around watching replay. Most of the time, people like you and I can, and the, the average sports fan can tell within two or three looks and about less than 30 seconds what the call should be. And we end up with these long drown out reviews. Some of the reviews it feels like are very obviously should be opposite way of what they're called, but because of the language of what the review calls for with, you know, unequivocal doubt or, uh, or full confirmation or, you know, egregious, whatever. I mean, the, I, I think specifically about the pass interference rule and how that's being challenged now and how the whole reason for that was because of that awful non-call in last year's championship game. The following year, yeah, excuse me, NFC Championship game, I should specify. But the following year, they changed the rule because of that terrible call. And basically now we have a rule that nobody really understands because it doesn't seem like it it gets overturned on those non-calls nearly as often as it should be. And we're still back in the same spot where a non-call decided a game in which the team that thought there should have been a call, and it wasn't as egregious, the one that uh, the Kyle Rudolph push-off, wasn't as, it wasn't as bad as the Nikel Roby Coleman play uh, that happened last year, but it still looked like pass interference. And it like, did. and now it definitely we're did. spending all this time. Now we're spending all this time on it and it feels like we're still not even getting it right. And so my issue is if we're going to spend the time, then, then get it right, change the language, or let's just get rid of the slow-mo at all and say, you networks can't show this. You're not allowed to. I mean, I know it enhances the experience, but if it makes everyone question every call and then the people who are officiating go back and think differently than the general public anyways, then what are we doing? And now I think about the NBA who's instituted coaches challenges. And it seems like the NBA is kind of just the wrong game for that. And that there's, there's so many little actions that happen within a play and a lot of things that could be called. I see these coaches challenging things that I see as rather insignificant. Um, maybe it should just be a last two minutes of the game, or maybe it should just be a sky judge. And I think we're really missing the, the big, big opportunity here, which is just to have like the trucks and somebody on a, on a computer with a with a buzzer be able to just say when there's a penalty and when there's not and take it out of the hands of the officials who are actually on the field but there's just i i I hate that now also every game seems to go back to something that was or wasn't called you think about the jadevian clowny hit on carson wentz some people say it was dirty some people say it wasn't but what i do think is that if you just saw that play one time in full speed you're not going to think nearly as much of it as if you, when you see 60 different angles at 120 different speeds and half of the people, including many former officials, saying, yeah, that should have been flagged. Yeah, that was an illegal hit. You know, that flag wouldn't be the difference because it's not going to bring Carson Wentz back in the yeah, game. But that's the there's, key too much, there's too much over-analysis of these replays even beyond when the call has been changed or not changed. I think that the accuracy of them 
has not has proven to not be great. And now it's it's kind of marring the conversation, the narrative surrounding the games themselves. I'm kind of tired of it. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. I don't really know what I feel like the solution should be. And that's tough because I don't know that I have one either. I, I think that you've hit on a lot of key points. Um, and I think that in general, the real problem here is that the leagues haven't really caught up with the technology and, and the technology of the slow motion replay that you're talking about. But really the other part that you didn't quite get to mentioning is the fact that everybody has Twitter and they have an, you know, they can get their opinion out there and then that sort of sways, you know, when everybody feels one way about a one play, you know, it kind of becomes like a mob storm online and then on top of that, you, you mentioned seeing it 120 different times. I mean, you're seeing these plays three or four times via replay on the TV, but then you can watch it on your phone. They live forever. Forever. I mean, you can watch that, the uh, Jadavian Clowney hit on Twitter or on, you know, whatever, Instagram, whatever app you're on. You can watch it over and over and over again, and then you can share your opinion, and, and it just starts to stockpile and steamroll, and there's, there's really no end to it. You know, I, you know, you go back to the championship, uh, the semifinal game between Clemson and Ohio State. There were two, if not three, really controversial calls that all went seemed to go against the Buckeyes, and the Buckeye fans still think they should be playing in the championship on Monday, and they may be right. You know, who's to say that they're wrong, really? But at the end of the day, Ryan, I just think that more than anything else, the officials have a really hard job, and. You know, we're, we've talked about this before. It doesn't really even matter the sport. But you're talking about the, the best athletes in the world who are big and strong and fast. And these calls are really, really close. You know, and it, it's hard. And I know you agree because you've articulated this opinion before and we, we both agree. It's almost impossible for the human eye to even make some of these calls bang, bang in the heat of the moment. And mm-hmm. then you go to replay, yeah. and, and something looks different than it did live. I think the Jadavian Clowney hit on the back of Carson Wentz's head is a good example. Um, I, I don't really know what we can do. I think that your sort of suggestion to have a command center, you know, an eye in the sky, one arbiter making all of these calls in sort of a more uh, a faster fashion than what they're doing now is probably the answer. You know, I always go to professional tennis whenever this discussion comes up, and I watch very little professional tennis, like almost none. But anytime I turn into one of these... you see it in the majors, it's easy. Yeah, you know, they have these... this It's almost like a video game look. It's a virtual reality where, you know, they've got on some video screen somewhere, they've got all the lines. And it's easier for tennis because you're basically playing within a line box. You know, you're not calling pass interference or a target. It's totally black and white, which does make it easier. It makes it way easier. But I just feel like if they can figure it out, uh, you know, the, the resources, the MLB, the NBA and the NFL has are far surpassed the financial resources that professional tennis has. And I just feel like if they put the proper time and energy into it, they could at least, you're never going to have 100% accurate calls all the time. I think most fans sort of understand and get that. But I do think that they can make improvements that catch up with the technology that just we, the common fan, has at home via big screen TV, these slow motion replays, and, and the internet, you know? So... 
I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but it just, I think the frustrating part is, is it doesn't feel like the leagues are doing quote unquote everything they can do. They're just sort of being reactive. They're not really getting out in front of the issues. You know, everything. They're kind of just pussyfooting around with it. They're just like they're they're dabbling yeah. a little bit. They're, it seems like they're trying. They to don't want to piss anybody both the off. Teams and the fans some crumbs and like they're testing the waters a lot before they just they just go for it and it's not working very well. Yeah, and I think that the there's a, another part here that plays a factor. The, all these officiating, you know, the referees or the umpires in baseball, they're all part of unions, and and you know they they have contracts with the leagues and. Those things mean something. You, you can't just eradicate your entire workforce of, of officials in one fell swoop. You know, it's going to have to be gradual. I mean, when you talk about robo-umpiring in, in, in baseball being a specific example of that, I think it gets tricky with the existing contracts. You know, when, when some of these contracts end, maybe they can sort of usher out the old and in and, and with the new. But I don't think that there's any real easy answer. And then the other thing is, is honestly, I think that the officials, for the most part, do a pretty damn good job. You know, I, I do. I think they do. I think there's they a call execute here at a and there in these proficiency big games. Than the players do. You know, 30 million people are watching that Vikings game, and, and the, the final play of the game is controversial. But they called a pretty a pretty good game throughout. You know, there was I don't know probably 150 other plays that they got right. So, and I don't think that the, that most people want to give them credit for that. And I think that, you know, you kind of get this mob mentality where, oh, the sky's falling, the officiating sucks, we've got a broken system. I don't buy into that. You know, I think most games I leave saying, you know what, maybe they missed a call here or a call there, but the right team usually ends up winning. They get the vast majority of the calls right and I'm fairly satisfied with it, but I do think that there are a few things they could do to sort of get, just progress a little more and just tighten it up a little more and make it a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, there are, you, you said it a little bit ago, but it doesn't seem like they're doing everything they can. And I think for as much revenue as they generate, there's no excuse for them not to. And so we agree um, it, 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 just, it just has to get better. We agree. Um, okay. We're going to move forward to my bad of the week. And my bad of the week yes. is basically uh, a couple college basketball coaches this this season have caught my ire. Um, uh, Roy Williams and Jim Beheim specifically. Roy Williams went on his radio show, I think, yesterday. Um, I didn't and, hear the Beheim, but I know where you're going with Williams, and I agree. Yeah. So basically it's college college coaches – should not be throwing their players under the bus, even if they're right. Um, even if they're right. Yesterday, Roy Williams, who, who his Tar Heels are in the, in the, off to one of their worst starts in decades, the worst start that he certainly has ever had. And on his radio show, he made a bunch of comments, but the one that's getting the headlines is he said, uh, the crazy thing about it is our team, and we've had some very gifted teams, this is not a very gifted team it's just not. And I have a huge problem with that because on a number Me of too. levels. Um, number one, Roy Williams is making probably what? I don't know exactly how much. He's making probably 4 or $5 million a year to coach college basketball. And a big part of his job is to recruit the players, him and, and the staff that he handpicks and employs. So if you want to take a shot at the talent, 
really you're taking a shot at yourself, Roy, because you're the one that brought these guys in. And I understand, you know, he's had some great teams over the past 10 plus years. He's had a lot, put a lot of guys in the NBA. Uh, no one's going to argue with Roy Williams' success. He's won multiple national championships. He was a great coach at Kansas before Carolina. Uh, he's, he's one of the most respected people in the history of the game, one of the all-time great winners. But he has a tendency to come across as sort of just an a-hole. And I think this is just another chapter. You know, you go back a couple years, and there was the story that he sort of relayed where he was on the massage table and telling his, his masseuse in the wake of, of losing to Duke that, you know, you would have thought that, that 9-11 had happened the way the Tar Heel fans were, were acting. I thought that was a comment in poor taste. And this is another one. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're recruiting the players, and also you're making $4 million a year. These players that you recruited aren't making a dime. They're there to get an education. Well, and, and also and you need them to win games, so you need them with you, not against you. And fucking coach them up then. Like, exactly. What is your job in this? Yes. Your job is to recruit them and then to coach them up. And if they're not getting the job done, even if they're not that talented, you don't say that to the media. To me, it's a pretty simple rule. When you're a college head coach and you're talking to the media about your players and about your team and they're not playing that well, you say, it's my fault. The, the players are doing everything they can. They're working their ass off. They're doing everything I right. Didn't get it's them my fault. Whatever. It's my coaching yeah. staff's fault. And that's the end of it. Even if it's not true, even if you don't believe it, that's you, the job. You're you're making the five million dollars a year. You take the hit at least in public, and that's it. I mean, it, it doesn't get more simple than that. You can't throw the players under the bus publicly. Jim Beheim, who's having an equally shitty season as the head coach of my Syracuse Orange, he does the same thing. He's done it this year. He does it every year. You know, he he threw his freshman power forward Quincy Garrier under the bus. Garrier was a fairly good recruit out of Canada. He's been playing like shit. Everybody knows it. But Beheim has to tell the media how, you know, he's not getting anything. Garrier isn't get, giving him anything. He needs to see more. He needs to be better. Well, you know what? Coach him up and make him better. And, and, if, yes. and if you can't do that, be better at recruiting. Because, you know, as a Syracuse fan, the team sucks. It's one of the worst teams he's ever had. And it's fully on Jim Beheim. The recruiting's been terrible since his top assistant, Mike Hopkins, left. He didn't mm -hmm. replace Hopkins with anybody good. They can't get any good players. And, he, and he, he runs no offensive system. They can't score. He's a shitty fucking coach. I wish he would retire. But, you know, all of that it can be true, but you still can't throw the players under the bus to the media. It just makes you look like a complete asshole. And, and it's just a low-class move, and, and I have no tolerance for it. So that's my bad of the week. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally with you here. And I think really presenting yourself like this and behaving this way as a coach at any level is bad, but especially as a coach of college kids. Yeah. Um, this, a lot of these guys, yeah, they expect to go to the NBA. Some of them expect to go to the NBA quickly. A lot of them aren't going to, and, and they are there to develop under you. So and get an whether or not, you know, yeah, and whether or not, whether or not you struck out in recruiting, this is your squad now. So be supportive because 
that's your job. Your job is to make them better by coaching them up. And if you don't have the, the if it's the worst talent you've had since you've been there, then you did the worst recruiting job you've done since you've been there. Yeah. That, that's, and you should be on the firing block, uh, quite honestly. Yes. If you can't get it done. Because it's not their fault. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you are they failing are at are. your job in which you're being paid in a, you know celebrity type money to do. So if you're not going to be good at recruiting and you're not going to be good at coaching them up, then you shouldn't have the job anymore, quite honestly. It's as simple as that. And if you want to rip your players in practice or in the locker room and tell them they suck or whatever, I don't have a big problem with that. I mean, that that's coaching 101, but you can't say it to the media. And I don't really have a problem, you know, Doc Rivers is kind of well-known for throwing his players under the bus. Uh, you know, if, if a pro coach wants to do it, it's a kind of a bad look. But I don't have a big problem with it because those players are getting paid a lot of money. Yeah. You know, and they're there to yeah. play basketball and nothing else. But college college sports is a completely different situation. And I just think, you know, a guy like Roy Williams, as successful as he's been, as, you know, all the great players he's had over the years, he knows better than this. He, you know, and maybe he's trying to motivate his team through the media, you know, probably that's really what he's trying to do. That's fine. You still don't talk about that it's the least talented team we've ever had here. Because, again, as we've said multiple times, that's his fault and no one else's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's garbage. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad look, and it's, it is uh, essentially trying to wash away any responsibility or accountability on your own behalf. On um, unpaid which it, 18-year-old players. Uh, when when it when it's your job to be the leader, it's um, it, it's 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 cowardly, and uh, it's, it's fucking. It's, and I, I think it sucks. I, mean, I think we agree. I don't know how else how else we can say it. Sorry yep. for cursing so much, Dad. I'm fired up. <laughs> All right, what's your interesting of the week? Uh, my interesting of the week: the NFL coaching hires. We yes. have we had five vacancies. Now four of them are filled. And to recap. Uh, the first domino to fall was Ron Rivera to the Washington Redskins, uh, which for what it's worth, I think is a pretty decent hire considering the disarray the Redskins are in. He might be the best they can get. I don't know. I don't, I don't know um, who you'd consider to be the other top candidates or the other top available candidates, but I think that's a pretty nice uh, hire for them. He's a guy who's shown he can win. Uh, additionally, uh, though, it would is peculiar about the Redskins is they've said they won't hire a GM until after the draft. That makes which no just, sense. Does it make and so basically you either have to sell your new GM on the players that you pick that he has to work well, who's with. Who's going to pick or, the players in the draft? Uh, I I mean I guess Rivera and the scouting department that's there. Um, I, I don't. It's Bizarre. it's not totally clear, but it's essentially going to be done by committee, and it seems a little bit. Uh, Ass backwards, if you will. It and, doesn't uh, so seem the next to give you much of an advantage. <laughs> no. Uh, the next was Mike McCarthy taking the Dallas Cowboys head coaching job. And uh, that one is, is a little bit interesting because I think that there – you could make the argument certainly that talent-wise and contract-wise, the Cowboys are in the, in the win-now window. And, uh, and having a, a coach who has uh, who's won a Super Bowl, a coach who has um, – who's – dealt with uh, some, some big veteran personalities before. 
I think it kind of makes sense, but I also think it might be safe. Now, um, by all, according to reports, McCarthy um, spent the year essentially developing a new analytics, uh, offensive analytics system, and yeah, uh, has did, kind of like, been some sort of online show around that. It, did, did yeah. It? Yeah, and but but it sounds like he has just been working on evolving as a coach this entire time, which may bode very well for them. And I kind of like the fact that they're going to keep offensive coordinator Kellen Moore there, who's a, kind of a young up and comer. Uh, then you, you go to Carolina, who today or was it today? Yesterday, yesterday um, announced they're going to be signing Matt. Baylor and uh, he, he I don't know if he's selling high or if he is the, the real deal but he's never even met a coordinator before uh, being the head coach at Baylor I think he spent a year in the NFL uh, coaching uh, online but uh, he gets seven years and 60 million out of Carolina with up to 70 million if he hits incentives mm-hmm. so that is just I, I think and it's one of the things I find interesting about this is kind of going to be the new standard for hiring. It's almost like uh, paying pitchers in baseball that y- you don't necessarily think when you're doing it that it's going to be worth all $70 million that you're committing to it. But those are the numbers you need to commit to get the deals done. And uh, I think previously we'd kind of seen guys get paid a little bit more on performance. And I remember it was a very big deal when Sean Payton was getting $8 million a year. And I remember it being a big issue between Jim Harbaugh and Jed York that the gym wasn't getting seven or, or something along those lines. And um, it seemed like the figures were hovering around that spot for a while. But here's now a uh, rookie head coach in Matt Rule has no pro experience who's going to be getting eight and a half million bucks right out of the gate before he's done anything. And I think mm-hmm. that, that that trend is really interesting. I'll be interested to see. Um, how he works uh, as a pro coach. I think he was relatively impressive in his press conference today. Uh, but he was uh, part of the reason I think they gave him so many years and so much money is that he was going to go interview with the New York Giants and they didn't want him getting on that plane. Literally, well, it was they that, kept him yeah, from getting on the like, plane to go to New York with a $60 million check. And according to reports, uh, Rule even gave the Giants the option to say, hey, if you, if you guys will ma- would, would match this, I'll entertain the conversation. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, that's okay. Uh, and so they, they asked for permission to speak with Jason Garrett, but then almost immediately hired the Patriots special teams coordinator and wide receivers coach, Joe Judge, who mm-hmm. made most people say, who? And uh, I still don't know very much about him, but Patriots special teams and wide receivers didn't have a very great year. But I think it's really just more of a reflection of wanting yeah, someone. He's been with uh, Belichick organi- for seven or eight years now. Yeah, the, you're taking someone from the organizational side of the Belichick coaching tree, which is uh, which which makes just a, a lot of sense. And yeah, so, and he was with think- Nick Saban at Alabama before that. And so I think there are a lot of things that are interesting about these various coaching hires. And then the Cleveland Browns haven't hired anybody yet. The, of course apparently the list is long of, of people. Yeah. And I, th- I saw someone say, uh, and of course now the Browns will say whoever they hire is who they wanted all along. But, but, it, but really it looks like they're just out there last again. And uh, yeah. Josh McDaniels I, is still out there for them, I guess. Yeah, I've heard that Robert Sala, the 49ers defensive coordinator, may be a name there. I know that mm-hmm. uh, Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, right. uh, is a name. Jim Schwartz is one. He just got fired as the defensive coordinator of the Eagles, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But I, I think that it's seems like a bunch of franchises going in a bunch of almost peculiar directions. I think that if you had told me before the year started that five coaches were going to be hired and asked me to name uh, at least one of them who was the, one of the replacements was going to be. I don't know that I would have gotten any of these guys. Um, 
I mean, maybe if I knew that Rivera was out there, sure. But you, you heard flashy names flying around like Urban Meyer and Lincoln Riley. And, uh, and really nothing has materialized with any names like that. It doesn't appear it's going to. So uh, I, first and foremost, it seemed like the, the media was just way ahead on stuff that really didn't have a, a, a lot of legs. And then additionally, I know there's now some controversy about uh, the Rooney rule, how it's being used and uh, or 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 not being used. And uh, and how, yes, Ron Rivera is a, a minority candidate that, that got one of these jobs, but that the black head coaches uh, continue to not get very many interviews in these processes. And it seems like yeah. in some cases the teams have even stepped around what the what the Rooney rule calls for as far as uh, the required interview process. Yeah, this latest, the, the most recent topic you hit on there, I think is probably the most interesting part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how deep we want to get into it, but we've got, in a league with 32 teams, we've got three black head coaches. Uh, Ron Rivera is a minority himself, so really four minority head coaches. But it's a league that has approximately 70% black players right now, and, and that's sort of been roughly the number for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. So I think that's the discouraging part for a lot of people is, you know, you've only got three head coaches in a league that has 70% black players. And on top of that, uh, it's a league that has zero black owners. It has uh, zero black GMs now that Ozzie Newsom has retired as the GM of the Baltimore Ravens. And, you know, I've heard this a bunch bunch of people say this today, that in general in America, not just in pro sports, but in America in general, particularly big businesses, corporations and the like, that, you know, people in power tend to hire people that that, that are kind of like them. So, you know, it we don't need to go down that road. But I think that's generally a true statement. And I think that that's generally what, if you are upset about this at all, that's sort of what you're upset about, that there aren't, there isn't enough, uh, minorities in this country who are wealthy enough to go out and buy these teams. I mean, if you look at the three major sp- pro sports leagues, MLB, NBA, and NFL, I-, I believe we only have one black person who owns any of those teams, and that's Michael Jordan, who owns the Charlotte Hornets. And, you know, he's mm-hmm. obviously arguably the most uniquely gifted and successful person in the history of American team sports. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, so, and he basically, you know, is the reason that Nike is what it is. So, um, mm-hmm. I think that's the part that if you're going to really go down this road that, that is troubling and, you know, what, what sort of has, has led us to this point where more minorities aren't, don't have enough wealth to own these teams and then go out and hire people that they're friends with or more familiar with and get my, more minorities in the mix. So I think that that's all part of the conversation. Now, I don't know what the solution is. You know, I don't think that the Rooney rule is necessarily doing what it was supposed to be, but you go back just two years ago, I think there were eight minority coaches in the NFL. Now there's only four. So you've, you've seen that number decrease by 50% in just two years. But, you know, I think if we had eight minority head coaches in the NFL today, there wouldn't be a whole lot of reason for, for, uh, for complaint, really. I mean, eight. And we out of 32, we also have that, just seen a couple recently. That's twenty five percent. You saw Hugh Jackson recently get canned. You saw Marvin Lewis recently get canned. Uh, and so it's and uh, uh, let's see. You also had who was the guy in 
in Arizona. Wilkes, was that his name? Um, yes. That before it preceded Kingsbury. So he was only there have one been, yeah, there have been more recently, uh, or more total than what we have in the NFL now in, in years past. But um, it's, a, it's another one of those issues that I don't really know what the right solution is because I have no um, idea. You know, and I don't even really know where you start because I, I think that the spirit of the rule is a, is an incredibly positive one, and that we we should be making sure, uh, or they should be making sure as a league and we as a society that that you know that all people are given equal opportunities here. But at the, at the same time, there are so many different factors at play that I, I don't know that setting parameters on how you force that is uh, how effective that's going to be. Yeah, and, and just to get back to the original conversation about who was actually hired, you know, I just hate it when when people, whether it's media or more specifically fans, you know, oh, you know, like the, all the New York Giants fans are up in arms that they hired Joe Judge. They have no idea who Joe Judge is. No. And that shouldn't no. be a reason to pan the hire. I mean, the Ravens fans had no idea really who John Harbaugh was when they hired him. And now he's one of the most successful coaches in the NFL in the last 15 years. You know, he was a, a longtime special teams coach for Andy Reid in Philadelphia. So Joe Judge is sort of kind of cut from the same cloth in terms of his background as John Harbaugh was. So I just hate it when fans, you know, bitch about, you know, the hire when they don't really know a damn thing about him. Or the reverse, you know, if, if the Cowboys had gone out and hired Urban Meyer Everybody would be like, ooh, that's an amazing move, you know, so sexy, great hire. But we have no idea if Urban Meyer would be a good NFL head coach right. or not. He's been a great college head coach, but we don't Same know at Lincoln all. Riley. He's never you know, coached we, yeah. in the NFL, so we don't know. Yeah, 100%. So I, I just think it's so silly, the reaction to these hires that fans have. You just got to let the dust settle. You know, the Redskins hire specifically with Ron Rivera. Rivera <coughs> excuse me. It seems like a step in the right direction. I mean, it seems like one of the better moves that Dan Snyder's made in some time, which isn't saying much. I mean, it seems like he's going to bring, uh, Rivera that is, is going to bring some stability to an organization that's desperately in need of some stability. You know, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, they, they got to get the right players in there. Their drafts over the years have been totally terrible. So we'll see what happens. And, you know, Mike McCarthy, I think that a lot of Cowboy fans were looking for a quote-unquote sexier name. But you look at McCarthy's track record, he went to eight straight playoffs with Green Bay. Sure, he had uh, Aaron Rodgers, but, you know, you could say that he had a big hand in developing Aaron Rodgers into the quarterback that he is now. And I like the fact that he spent, you know, the better part of two years now trying to get modernized his thinking with the game, mm -hmm. learn from others, you know, break down all of his tendencies and try to sort of reinvent himself. I think that's a huge positive for anybody to do, particularly an NFL head coach. So I'm kind of excited and interested to see what new wrinkles he brings to the Cowboys because, as you said, they're a really talented team, at least on paper. But uh, good, interesting of the week. My interesting of the week is the national championship game in college yes. football coming up on Monday. Uh, we haven't talked since the semifinals. I don't know if you got to see. Did you get to see the Clemson-Ohio State game? Um, you know what? I did. I saw the f funny thing, circling back to the India trip, the wedding was supposed to be start at 9 a.m. that day, and everything in India 
happens at like a snail's pace. And so it didn't actually start until 11 a.m. I got to watch the entire second half, uh, which wrapped up around 1045 local time. So, yeah. Well, Ryan, I'm going to say this, and we don't need to spend much time on it because it's so far in the past, and we've got another game coming up on Monday. I thought that game was one of the best college football games I've ever seen. It was awesome. I really do. I mean, uh, as a neutral observer, I mean, I had bet a little money on Clemson, so I was pulling for them. I just thought it was an absolutely spectacular game. Uh, You know, I think that those three teams, Clemson, LSU, and Ohio State, are heads and heels above the rest of the competition in college football this year from a talent and coaching perspective. Uh, You know, there was three teams really for two spots. That game could have easily gone either way. Clemson made all the plays down the stretch. They benefited from uh, two big calls, both of which I thought were probably the right call. I mean, we don't need to debate them. But now here we are. We've got Clemson, who's trying to win their second championship in a row. They haven't lost now in two years. And LSU, who's had one of the best seasons in the history of college football. Uh, The Heisman Trophy winner Joe Burrow goes out on on championship Saturday. And the first seven possessions, he throws seven (laughs) touchdown passes. It's unbelievable. I mean, the weapons they have, it looks like their defense is really coming around. They're getting their best pass rusher, Michael Divinity, back for this game. Uh, LSU is a five-point favorite. I just think it's going to be a tremendous game. Obviously, for me, as an Alabama fan, I'm not a fan at all of either one of these (laughs) Tiger teams. But I'm just really excited to sit down and watch the game. I think it's going to be an awesome game. I think that both teams are about as good of a college football team as you can have. They really, both teams to me, have very few weaknesses. They've got strengths all over the field. Uh, Trevor Lawrence and Joe Burrow are two of the best college quarterbacks I've ever seen. Uh, I'm just really fired up to watch this game. I think it's going to be a classic. Um, We'll talk about who we think is going to win here in a minute when we go in the book. But that's my overall take on the game. I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm very fired up for this game. I have not been able to uh, watch the the semifinals as closely as I wanted uh, with as much attention as I would want on, on those games. Uh, I'm excited to fully immerse myself in the entire weekend going through Monday. And I just think it's a, it's an awesome matchup. I think that I'm excited about, I mean, granted, they're not a rival of mine. I'm excited about the way that LSU has evolved and kind of taken the step into into. The, the this current modern era of, of football offense where it's not just a smash mouth eye formation football anymore, but they've, they found something really special with uh, their coordinators, Ensminger and Brady and, uh, and, and Joe Burrow obviously being the trigger man for all of that has been really impressive, but I've always liked the cut of uh, coach O's jib and uh, it's, it's cool to see him uh, finally being successful here and seeing them uh, turn into this absolutely dominant powerhouse when, um, they have kind of been uh, a second fiddle in uh, in the SEC in, in recent years to uh, the dominance of Alabama, some of the dominance of Georgia, even um, Auburn winning a national title in there as well. But they, it's been been a little longer for them, and it seems like they've been idling. It, it just seems like they've made a huge leap this year. Clemson, meanwhile, I think that everyone was agreed was just the best team in the country at the start of the year, but because their resume by comparison continued to uh, or, or evolved to be not as good by comparison of the other teams in the top five, the top 10. Um, I think they just get knocked a ton, but they're an incredibly talented football team. They 
like Alabama, they turn and in well some of the best recruiting. Um, yeah, they turn in some of the best recruiting classes year in and year out, and then their coach knows exactly what to do with them. He knows how to put players in position to succeed. He's got outstanding coordinators, and, uh, and I think that a lot of this game is really going to be a chess match. I'm super excited to see the LSU offensive side of the ball against the Clemson defensive yeah. side of the ball. And then additionally, um, to see what Trevor Lawrence does against a, a really imposing defense. And, um, and so uh, I, I'm just, I'm all kinds of fired up for this game. I, I hope that it delivers something closer to Clemson, Ohio state than, uh, than LSU, Oklahoma, but oh, uh, I'm excited for this game. nonetheless. Yeah, I, I think that goes without saying that that will happen. So let's just roll it in. Let's go in the book. Let's stay on this game. Make a pick. Um, right now, the line I'm looking at on Vegas Insider, it's hovered between five and six for, you know, a, a little over a week now. Right now, it is LSU minus five. Who do you like? Man, um, I think I – and actually, I want to open this up with a question. I, I am second place in my bull pick'em pool. I do not have enough – uh, it, it basically, if I don't, there's not enough discrepancy in my confidence points left in the person ahead of me that if we both pick the winner, that I that I would win. I need to pick the winner and have him lose. So, do you go about this that you try to do whatever you can to just guess what he's going to pick and go opposite, or do you, knowing that you need to win regardless, just try to pick the winner? Yeah, I always struggle with these decisions. It's sort of like I struggle with the best time and way to hedge a bet. You know, there's a lot of talk sure. these days about hedging bets, and that's essentially what this is. I think it's yeah. too tricky to try to guess what he is going to do. I tend do, to agree. And you just go with whatever you think is going to happen and live with that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, and especially because if you don't get the winner right, you're not going to win anyways. You need, you, need, right. you need to win and have them lose. So, right. Um, Anyhow, I, but as far as the game is concerned, uh, I think I would roll with the Tigers and the, oh, they're both Tigers, <laughs> with Clemson, <laughs> with Clemson and the points. Yes, um, I agree. I, I, I feel that the, most of the hype is on LSU, and I do think that to the point of it being annoying, Dabo has played up the, uh, Dabo's nobody out of, wants us here. Dabo's out, of, out fucking of control. control. He is. He, he is, but I he think really his is. team. I think his team believes it. I think that they think they've been slighted all year long. Uh, that no one believes in them, and they've got as much talent as anybody in the country. I think they're going to give LSU everything they can handle. But that being said, LSU has been the far more dominant team this season. Uh, I, I, well, I would not be surprised if they win. They? I, I mean, I'm not Clemson, expecting though. Clemson, I think, beat their last seven opponents before Ohio State by thirty points or more. And that's fair, but the I think the, the level of competition yeah, sure. is also uh, well, that, that's without you know, a doubt could be it's debated. Not like Clemson just kind of limped into the playoff. But I wouldn't be. I, I think if I if you're just asking me to pick a winner, I'm leaning LSU. But if you're giving me more than a field goal, I, I'm I'm probably taking Clemson in the points. Yeah, I think um, that's fair. Yeah, I, and then I what do you what do you make of the over under sixty nine and a half? It's a big one. It's a big. It is number. a big one. I, I would tend to go under. I think. Um, 
I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. I generally agree. I think in these games, to the teams, there's a little bit of a chess match that goes on early where they feel each other out. Sometimes yeah. it's not that both teams don't want to strike quickly, um, but it, it doesn't always happen that way. Both offenses have to play really well to get there. Yeah, you know, when I look at this game, I look at I look at just sort of as I always do, what the public perception is, and quite often in games like this, or really any football game, the majority of the betting public is only looking at the last game that each team played. And mm-hmm. in this case, LSU blew the freaking doors off of a overmatched Oklahoma team, and Clemson right. was down early and came back and beat a really fantastic... And a lot of people, a lot of people felt lucky to, to win that game. Yeah, and I don't see it that way. I just think that Ohio no. State was really, really good. And, you know, Clemson did had to do everything they could to win the game. They also had a bunch of injuries. You know, T. Higgins went down early. Then he was out most of the first half. He came back in the second half but wasn't himself. I expect him to be at full strength in this game. So I think that's going to be a difference. I think that Clemson's offense is going to play better in this game than they played against Ohio State. I'm, I don't know necessarily if Ohio State's defense is that much better than LSU's. I do think that they're a little bit better. But again, I, I just expect, you know, Clemson relied heavily on Trevor Lawrence running the football in that game. And that was out of character for them. I don't think you're going to see nearly as much of that in this game. I think I expect Clemson to get comfortable early with Lawrence. And I expect Etienne to play a bigger factor in this game mm-hmm. as well, who I think is a very underrated player. On the LSU side, I keep waiting for Joe Burrow to have, if not a bad game, certainly a less than, you know, all-time great game. Yeah. And he keeps proving me wrong. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that Joe Burrow, honestly, I've thought the whole year that he's been a little bit, I don't know, maybe a little bit overrated. Not so much overrated, but just... He's done everything that's asked for him, but is he maybe more of a product of the system guy? I think he is. I mean, I think that he's got... So many weapons to, to around him, and I think that the play calling is so good and so crisp and so smart. You know, he and, and the protection that he gets from his offensive line is so good. So I'm looking for like you are to see what you know vaunted Clemson defensive corner Brett Venables and that defense is able to throw at him to to sort of slow him down, maybe get an interception that turns the game, maybe a black side blitz. That, causes a fumble, or maybe just to hit him, you know, just to hit him a bunch. He had Alabama hit him a bunch, and he kept running the ball, and he was unfazed. And then I look at some of the other games that LSU's played. You know, the two best defenses they've played all year were against Auburn and Florida. They were both at home, but they I, I, I would have to go back and look. But they didn't score in the 30s against either of those teams. I think that this Clemson defense is pretty much on par with the Auburn and Florida defenses. So that's why I sort of tend to to like the under. I think that this Clemson defense can hold Burrow, maybe not under 30, but in the low 30s. And I think, you know, I just, again, I think that everybody likes LSU. You know, you look at the, the betting experts on Twitter, it seems like the public is all over LSU. Anytime they move the line to six, the sharp players jump on Clemson. So to me, that tells me a lot that, you know, the public sentiments LSU, but the people who know a little bit more like Clemson, I'm going to go with Clemson. I'm going to bet on Clemson, but I don't feel great about it. Just because, yeah, you know, agreed. I think LSU is really, really good. 
They're playing in their backyard in the Superdome, which I'm not sure how much of a factor that is, to be honest. The last time they played a championship game in the Superdome was against Alabama. Uh, I believe that was in 2012, and they didn't cross the 50. Now, that, that team was totally different. They didn't have Joe Burrow. They, their offense was totally different. But everyone thought that LSU was going to steamroll Alabama in that game for a bunch of reasons, one of them being they were at home in the Superdome. So I'm not sure how much that plays a factor. You know, I think Clemson has won everywhere in every way. You know, they were a, a seven-point underdog in the game against Alabama last year, and they came and blew the freaking doors off the tide basically from the jump. So I just, I just like Clemson in this game for a bunch of reasons. I think they're going to cover. I, would, I, I think they're going to win. But I don't feel great about that because, again, I do think Burrow's really good. I do think LSU is really good. It's just going to be a great game. But I'm, I'm going to go with Clemson. Yeah, I think I am too. And I think for the purposes of my pool, I may do that as well. Uh, I, I think that it's more likely that the, the, the top player takes LSU. But uh, I also just I believe in Clemson. I, think that, I don't know that they're a sleeping giant. They've obviously gotten plenty of hype over the last few years. Uh, but it seems like they're the well, they've, team. They've won who, two national championships in the last yeah, three years. But it, but the, it seems like they're the team here who is not counted out, but is not is not expected to win here. And I think maybe they should be the team who is expected to win here. Yeah, we agree. Um, on the NFL side, any any games you like? Uh, I, I'm going to need to know more about injury statuses uh, in Minnesota or availability of the wide receiving core before I sniff into that oh, line at all. But. Um, I mean, I, I think that Minnesota is going to give San Francisco a game if they're healthy. So um, I, I'd be inclined to – I like most of the un, underdogs. I, I think I the, the, the one uh, favorite I think I like is Kansas City. I, I'm just – I don't – I'm not that big of a believer in Bill O'Brien and Houston as much as I like Deshaun Watson and some of the weapons he has on offense. Uh, I'm not – I don't have a good enough feel on Tennessee and Baltimore because mostly because I've been wrong about those two teams a lot this season. Uh, it seems like when I believe in them, they uh, they turn it on, or they or excuse me, they turn it off, and when I don't, they turn it on, and I can't quite get that right. But uh, I have been rolling with Seattle a lot of this year, and I'm I'm definitely going to keep doing that. That's the game I like most of all is the is Seattle getting four points at Lambeau. I think they I think they're probably going to win that game outright. I would probably be looking to make a money line play on that as well. Um, as far as the totals, nothing really jumps out to me. I could see Tennessee and Baltimore maybe staying under 46 and a half, but who knows with that Baltimore offense, they can score very quickly at times. I just don't see that being the case with Tennessee. So what about yourself? Um, I, I, I align with you in, in, in a bunch. I think if I were to play a favorite, I think I like Baltimore just because mm-hmm. I think that they are going to at least try to make Tannehill beat them and shut down King Henry. I don't know if they can be super successful in shutting down King Henry. No one really has been able to do that. But I think that Baltimore is a really, really good team. You know, I still, like I said at the top of the show, I have questions about Lamar. As great as he's been all year, how is he going to respond now that he's back in the playoffs? But I think he's a totally different player now. I think they're a totally different team. I just don't see how Tennessee is going to score enough points to, to even really stay in this game. Uh, I, I, I would probably lay the points with Baltimore. I like you. I like Seattle with the points and probably to win. And then I, I think I like Houston. If I could get 10, you know, it's at nine and a half. Now 
I would feel mm-hmm. pretty good with it if I, if that got to 10. And then the last game, I got to see, like you said, how, how are uh, the Vikings receivers going to play? If they're healthy, I like Minnesota, I think, plus mm-hmm. seven. But it's really hard to go on the road in two weeks in a row like that and, and just pull the shocker in the Superdome against New Orleans. You know, I I before the playoffs started, I picked New Orleans to win the Super Bowl. So uh, I think the, the Niners' path to the Super Bowl is greatly enhanced by Drew Brees and the Saints now being out of it. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I would tend, if I had to bet the game right now, I think I would bet the Niners minus seven. Um, but we'll see as we get closer to Sunday and some of this injury picture. Let me throw one more at you. Saturday, because I, I know. Yeah. Let me throw one more at you just because I know this is an option if, if people are looking on online apps or whatever. Um, if you were picking one team to come out of the AFC and the NFC right now, who would it be? Not well, just this weekend, but to win the next two games. Yeah, I I, I think that Kansas City is going to win the Super Bowl. If I, I do too. bet on a team, I think Kansas City is going to win the Super Bowl. I really like how their defense has been playing. Now, obviously, they're going to have to go to Baltimore and win. Uh, in the AFC Championship game, that's going to be really, really tough. But I, I just like, I don't know, I like what I see from the Chiefs. In the NFC, if I had to pick, I would pick the 49ers. I honestly, like you, think that they can be shaky, but they're pretty damn good, man. They're a pretty good, complete team. They're going to have the home field advantage. And I like, if they can get by Minnesota, I like their chances against either Seattle or or Green Bay. I really would love to see a third round between San Francisco and Seattle. Those first two games were two of the best games I've seen all year. They were two of the best games all year. I actually think that if I had to pick one team coming out of the NFC, I would take Seattle. I Mm -hmm. think they're going to win at Lambeau, and I think if they play the Niners, it is so hard to to basically beat the same team um, twice in a year. Or, excuse me, and, and I, I see them. Well, they split the first two. They, they split. So, I mean, I know someone has to, but I yeah. think the way the last one went, I, I just, I feel like Seattle in many senses outplayed the 49ers in, in both games and maybe should have won them both. Uh, I just, they're, they're uh, you give me Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll, I'm still taking them over Jimmy G and Kyle Shanahan. And it's, yeah, it's not I don't as know. Old, it's I, I disagree. I disagree. And, and the I reason- hope we get to see, though. The reason why is I just don't think that the Seahawks have enough running game. I mean, this guy Homer is nothing great, and, and obviously Marshawn is on his last legs here. They're really only using him in short yardage and goal line situations. I don't think that they've got enough balance on offense to come into Levi's and, and, and beat the 49ers. I, I just think the 49ers can outscore them now without much of a running yeah. game. Yeah, and you, you may be right. I just I, I think that – Seattle kind of has something special brewing with uh, with with Russell Wilson under center. He just he's oh, he's the no kind of guy now. He's fantastic. And he, and he but he's the guy that makes me think like he more than any other quarterback. Like I would trust him more um, than in in, in, in a got to have it drive or third down or fourth down yeah, situation than really anybody else out there. But but I think the Niners defense can make them totally one dimensional and and I just don't like the yeah and honestly. In as much as I like Seattle uh, on Sunday to go to Green Bay, 
the lack of their running game really does scare me. You know, well, their they, O-line is a mess right they, now. And they were barely able to beat Philly with Josh McNapp, Josh McCown, you know, yeah. a play here or a play there, and, and they wouldn't have even won that game. So I, I'm, I might be rethinking my Seattle pick on Sunday, honestly, now that we've sort of hashed it out. I, I may lean towards Green Bay in that one. I, I, I need to wait and see. All right. All right. Let's uh, – I know you got to go. Um, let's just kill the 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 uh, the wild card. And Are you sure? Because I got one. You got one. Give me one. I don't have. I don't have one for you. So let's just do so one. What do you have? There, it, it's something that uh, has been a Twitter trend this week, okay. and has even um, I think even in the last day become more popular. You may have seen some of this retweeted or liked in your timeline. But somebody put out a pretty innocuous tweet that just said, tell me a story about yourself that sounds like a lie but ah. is absolutely true. Um, I have seen and, and some of the responses have been incredible. And I've seen like a lot of really cool sports stories um, come out of this. I saw somebody tweet about being in traffic with Phil Mickelson and him calling his agent asking if a helicopter could get them out of there. And <laughs> really? Phil Mickelson like retweet, retweeted it and was like, yeah, after the Guns N' Roses concert, 92. And uh, I awesome. saw like a, an NFL reporter say that they once had a bag of potato chips stuck in a vending machine and that Andy Reid and, and another coach, uh, might have been Biennemi, came over and helped shake the machine to try to get it loose. And when they couldn't, they gave her another dollar and she got two bags of potato chips out of it. Like they're just like, but there's also some really like wild criminal ones or people who uh, meet a long lost relative or family member. But do you have anything like that? Something that like if a story that you tell that is so unbelievable, if it weren't for the fact that I believe what you're saying, it seems like it couldn't have happened. All right, I've got two. Neither one is that great, but they're pretty right. pretty good. So the first one that comes to mind, uh, I actually told this story, and it may have been on our very first podcast. I'm not sure. It was it was one of the first ones, and you'll remember it when I. But for those who don't remember it or never heard it, uh, I was at this like Russian sauna spa place that I've been going to quite a bit. And this was in the early days of me going. This was probably the second time I'd ever been there, but which doesn't really matter. But I'm sitting in this, like, sauna. It's a real hot one. It's like 200 degrees. And I'm sitting in there with this guy who's probably 60 years old. And, uh, you know, we're chopping up, making small talk. And, and I'd asked him if, if he had ever been to this place. And he said he never had. And I said this was, like, my second time. I really liked it the first time, and I wanted to come back. And he said, yeah, you know, not only is this my first time here, but this is actually the first time in my life that I've ever sweat before. Um, yeah, okay, now I remember this. That is so bizarre. Yeah, and I yeah. was just like, wait, wh what? Wh did you just say this is the first time you've ever sweat before? And he was like, yeah, it is. And and he went on and kind of told me his whole life story that he had grown up and he, you know, he had like some sort of, disease where he wasn't allowed to play sports and he was always very interested in like the theatrics and he had spent his life uh like as you know in finance or something and he had quit his job five years ago to live out his childhood dream of of writing a play and he had just that day finished his play 
that he had been working on for five years. And he decided, you know, he was so stressed out. Somebody had told him he should go to this place and to sort of relax and sweat out the stress. And he, and he took him up on it. And here he is in the sauna with me, sweating for the so first weird. time in his so entire weird. life, is what he said. <laughs> so, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I still don't, but he seemed to be legit. So that's my one story that I would go to. The other one, uh, growing up in Norfolk, Virginia, as I did, I interned at like the NBC affiliate when I was in college, and I got sent out, you know, Allen Iverson is from the, the town that I'm in, and this was in Iverson's heyday with the Sixers when he was just a wild man and, you know, around the, the practice time where, where he just didn't really answer to anybody. So he had this charitable, you know, this summer charity softball tournament that I went out with like a TV camera by myself to cover. And it was in, you know, this area that he grew up in. It is not a very nice or affluent area. And it was, uh, you know, there weren't that many people there. And we're out there playing AI and his, his, he's got this whole crew out there. And there was, you know, it was the summer in Virginia. It's very hot. Uh, there were thunderstorms in the forecast. And we're out there, and they get to about the second inning. And you kind of hear thunder in, in the distance. And Iverson starts kind of freaking out a little bit. And okay, and he, he, he's basically like, we're not playing anymore. The game is over. And they're like, what do you mean the game's over? Like, this thunderstorm isn't anywhere near. Like, it was like very faint thunder in the distance. And he's like, well, we're just going to like, you know, kind of take a break and see what happens. So the game kind of stops and everyone like kind of jams into this little ramshackle dugout at this like wreck softball field that we were at. And here I am, you know, and I'm actually kind of a little skittish when it comes to lightning myself. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling a bit of anxiety and I've got the TV camera and, and we all sort of jam in this dugout, you know, and there's lots of people in there and I end up right next to Iverson. Like right next mm -hmm. to him, almost like belly to belly. And, and, you know, I introduce myself and we start kind of making small talk. And he kind of reveals to me, he's like, you know, man, I, I'm kind of afraid to admit it, but I'm like really afraid of thunderstorms. And I was like, me too. And he's like, oh, for real? And we kind of started bonding over the fact <laughs> that we were afraid of thunderstorms. And, and, and he was like, you know, I think I'm just going to get the hell out of here. Like, I, I don't I don't need to do this or whatever. He's like, I don't want to be out here in, in this, like, metal dugout when the, when it's lightning. He's like, it's my tournament. I'm calling it off. I'm like, fine by me. I don't I don't want to be out here while, <laughs> while it's lightning either, Alan. And he's like, we're done. And he, like, tells his boy to, like, pull the car. So his, his friend, like, brings his, like, really nice Mercedes right up to the dugout. He gets in and leaves. And that was the end of the Allen Iverson charity softball tournament after one inning of play. And uh, that was <laughs> That's a, good one. A, a fun little experience. But those are the <laughs> two that come to mind. Um, How about you? you? Know, I don't know that I have, I don't know that I have any that are like, tr that are truly like un unbelievable or like not of the caliber that I've seen some of the people share online. Um, one, I guess that jumps out is that I was, um, or our, our family was one of the 218 uh, people sued in the Napster lawsuits. Really? And, uh, yeah. For downloading so we, we a bunch had to, of stuff illegally? 
for downloading illegally. Yeah. Uh, and everyone said like, oh, you know, you have to turn sharing off and then you won't get caught because you'll have like less activity or whatever. Right. And like my dad basically like didn't buy it. And I was like, like, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't think so. And uh, then we got like a subpoena and then my oh. dad got served with court papers. because uh, It was all on his IP address, right. but it was all me and my brother's music. Um, and okay. so we had to pay, like it was, they were prosecuting for like 50, $50 per file, um, punishable up to like 50,000 uh, per infringement. And then, um, and they basically said, you can make this go away for three grand. And then you have to sign an amnesty agreement, uh, that says that you won't illegally download music again. Uh, and if you do, if we catch you doing it again, you'll pay a $750,000 fine. No questions asked. And so, uh, so you paid so we the signed three that grand agreement. We have the paper. Yeah. We paid the three grand, signed the papers right. and have not illegally downloaded since. That's a pretty good, um, so that, that would be one, uh, it's, I don't know that it's like unbelievable. It's like a, you know, one of those things that you share at a cocktail party. I once hit a home run out of Oracle Park to right field, Damn. which I'm, I'm re relatively proud of because it's uh, a lot of major leaguers struggle to do that. Uh, it was part of just Good like a you. batting practice exhibition. Um, it was out of a pitching machine. Maybe the, the, the less believable thing that happened that day, and, and I just think I stumbled into my better response, is that um, I had heard from a, a mutual friend of ours or mutual colleague of ours, Jason Liu, uh -huh. that, uh, that w basically as part of this uh, sales event where they would bring prospective clients out to the stadium where the San Francisco Giants play, right. they would do batting practice off of a machine and they'd also have like a celebrity Giants guest come and pitch batting practice. And everybody would get 10 pitches off the machine and 10 pitches off of like the legend. Well, Vita Blue was out there uh, throwing. And, I, and Jason Liu had told me a story that Vita Blue, despite the fact he's out there to like be, be you know, kind of a, a face for the Giants and, uh, and someone who's just connecting uh, in like an alumni relations type way, like he's still competitive and has competitive juices. And Vita doesn't like it if, if you start hitting lasers off of him. And mm -hmm. so that Jason had been to a previous one where some guy showed up with, with wood bats and everyone's like, okay, who does this dude think he is? Well, he played like legit college ball in some minor leagues and he started like pumping balls into the bleachers and Vida was like getting pissed and he's like trying to like hump it up there and he's probably getting into like the low eighties again. And people are like, what is going on here? But I had heard this story and I'm like, yeah, right. Like I, he can't care that much. And so Sure enough, Vida serves me up a meatball the very first pitch, and I like lace it into Triple's alley. Like it, it, it definitely makes it to the wall. I mean, it wasn't anywhere near being a home run, but I mean, I, I ripped this ball. He threw at me the, the next pitch, and he hit me. Wow! And uh, and uh, and he it was it was like mostly joking, and he he wasn't like piping it up, but like I ripped off my helmet and I charged the mound at Vida Blue. Wow! And uh, and, and then we had like a hug and a laugh, and he like Vida's a back great in there. guy. And then, and then he only threw me junk the rest of the time. Would not throw me a fastball again because he didn't want to get want want to get hit again. But you you took the pitching machine out to left. I took the pitching machine out to right, uh, and then and then opposite Vida, field. Or are you a left handed? No, no, I'm, I'm a lefty. I'm okay, a lefty, so gotcha. I, I pulled it. Got it. Did it um, splash? It did not splash. It landed up on the arcade, but didn't okay. go over. Got it. Yeah. Cool. So, but yeah, I guess ones. charging the mound on Vita Blue sounds less believable than uh, hitting a BP home run. Both are cool. Those, those are both cool stories for sure. And then the one, I've got the one some other Iverson stories, actually. 
I, I, that I'm not going to tell now. I'll tell him another time. But I went to his charitable tournament in Hampton, Virginia, three different years in a row. And all three of them uh, had just crazy shit happen. Two, so I told the thunderstorm story. There was another mm-hmm. thunderstorm, another year when they had an indoor basketball tournament. And it, the, the, the thunderstorm just like shut all the power out at the Hampton University Arena, and that event ended early as well. Just unbelievable, really. Um, but, yeah, I mean, all three encounter. I had a few more uh, Iverson sightings and run-ins, and all every time Iverson was in the mix, weird and crazy shit happened. That is, that's, that's kind of funny. It was that on more, and more than one occasion that it was like, I mean – a lot of crazy shit happened around him just in his life. It is like crazy shit seemed to follow Alan at times. It, it, it but, was, uh, it was, and he always rolled with just like an impossibly large entourage. Like we're talking like 25 people around him at all times, including like men, women, and children. And the, the, the children that were around him were always like mini me's of him. Like they, you know, had their hair braided exactly like him. They dress just like him. They look just like him, but they were like five, you know, and, and <laughs> it was just, it was just bizarre. It really was. There's no other way to describe it. And then the last one I have before uh, we, we finally wrap this thing up is yeah. um, in 1989, my dad's birthday was on October 16th. I mean, it's always on October 16th, but in 1989, You've told I was me four story. years old. I was on, I was four years old. I bought him. Uh, I bought him a tie for yeah. his birthday because I, I was like, in my mind, that was like a mature gift to give my dad. He was in banking and finance and he wore ties to work every day. So I picked one out myself and it was this hideous turquoise and purple paisley tie. And I, I don't know why I settled on that one, but I was four. And uh, and so out of deference to me and, and to show his appreciation for the gift, he decided he would wear it to work on the, the very following day, the 17th. He probably after that would have just put it in the back of of the drawer and it wouldn't have seen the light of day again. But on his way home from work that day, uh, the uh, San Francisco earthquake hit and broke the Bay Bridge. And my dad was driving on the bridge when it broke. Uh, he was about a quarter mile before the crack or before the break. And so he said all traffic stopped and he saw motorcyclists driving against traffic the other direction. And then he saw people running from their cars. And rather than following suit, he went the other direction almost like a bad apocalypse movie like trying to see what's happening up there my dad walked up and looked over the break himself walked back to his car turned it around and and drove the long way around the bay home but from that day forward he considered the tie i gave him his lucky tie and he wore it for every uh big pitch meeting review you know what have you uh for uh for the rest of his banking career yeah that's that's a wild story i've i've heard you tell that one before but um, all good ones. Um, good, good to have you back. And let's reconvene next week and break down divisional weekend. Look ahead to championship Sunday and break down the CFP national championship game. Does that sound good? Good to be back and uh, excited and fired up to talk some football again next week. All right, cool. Thanks everybody for listening. Have a great weekend. Good night, everybody. Sleep tight.